0: up 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I would like to remind you that Paul is, um, he's writing to the Corinthian church um, because one of the families that he's left there in charge, they have house churches, they've written back to Paul now that he's moved on. If you've read the book of Acts, you know that Paul stays in a certain area, he shares the gospel, churches sprout up, that's why we call ourselves a church plant because where the gospel is spread, it's like seed on the ground. And then churches sprout up that begin to be uh, built up in order to share the gospel in their areas. And in Corinth, there was a church that was started up. And in Corinth, there was 400,000 people. And you could see why it's important that there would be a church there. Well, this is a very pagan culture. They worship two things. Uh, Well, they worship many things. But two of the main things are wisdom, philosophy, um, and pleasure. And so... uh, not only is it pleasure about entertainment, but it's also pleasure uh, with intimacy. Um, uh, they lived very uh, promiscuously, and so uh, to be called a Corinthian in that day meant to be called someone who lives a loose life, someone who lives uh, very out there. They're bold. Uh, they they live it up. They eat, drink, and die for you know. They eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. They're trying to grasp all they can from this life. Because they look at it like it's just a glimpse. I may as well live it up. And so Paul is writing to a very dark culture where primarily what they worship is themselves. You know, if you ever meet someone that that is really just all about feeling good or knowing lots of stuff, it's really all about them. And so Paul, as he's writing to this, he's not writing to the culture. He's writing to the church there. And he's received a letter from one of the ladies in the church that says basically we're having some problems in the church and they need to be addressed and we don't know how to address them. But it's basically so bad that there's knockdown dragouts about particular issues within the church and it's causing there to be division and I'm worried for basically that the church is going to break up and it's no longer going to be. And so Paul sits down at his desk. He has Sosthenes there with him who writes down the letter for him. And he says, Hey, Corinthians, I've got some words for you. And so we're reading that very word that he sat down to write and he's quite bold with them because they need some boldness. They need somebody to shake them out of their current state because it's tragic. When the church of God, when the people of God within the church can get cannot get along with each other, it's because they've put their own needs before the, the needs of others. And in the body of Christ, that can't be the case because the Savior that we follow put our needs above His, and that's how we were able to obtain such a glorious salvation. And so we don't reflect our God when we serve ourselves instead of others. So in the church here, Paul is writing, and he's written to them, he says, you really are nothing. In, first, uh, in the first chapter, he says, you're really nothing apart from what God has done in you. Everything that you have, everything that you are, the way that you've arrived at the position you are today in Christ." is only because of God's grace. It's not because you deserved it. It's not because you follow a certain teacher. It's not because you were baptized. It's only because God has first loved you that you can love him. And so Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, before we get there, I was going to read Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. And it says the same thing in chapter 16, verse 25. And it says this, there's a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it, therefore, is death. And sometimes what we think is I have to uh, follow my own heart. That's what our culture, that's what Disney says. Follow your heart, and do whatever it tells you. But Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And so the the reality is, is that Paul's writing to a group that think that if we follow the wisdom of the world, we take the advice of our neighbor, if we listen to all the voices that are speaking into our life from commercials, now they didn't have TV, but there were commercials, I'm sure. Uh, there were things going on in their lives that they were like, we don't know how to handle this. I wonder how so-and-so handles it. And so they started handle, handling the internal decision-making and the way that the church was run like they were running a business or like they were running a uh, you know anything that the world would have. And what happened is as the ideas of the world came into the church and started to govern the way the church made decisions, it caused more problems than it did fixes. And so what Paul says here in chapter two, he says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And now remember, in the last chapter, what He said was, Jesus became the wisdom of God for us. And so He says here, I, I came among you and I didn't try to impress you. I didn't try to give you eloquent speeches. Because in their culture, if you were popular, it's because you could speak well. Now, I can't relate with anybody like that because I stumble more over my words then I speak eloquently. I can barely say eloquent. You know, it's it's something that doesn't roll off my tongue. But they had people in their culture that man, they were savvy. And when they spoke, they were you were just like, "I, I don't know what you just said, but I want to follow you. You sound awesome." You know, they were very charismatic. And Paul, Paul was a charismatic man, but he, when he said what he went to cor- Corinth, he said, "I didn't come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God." For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When I came among you, I saw the problems you had, but I recognized that these problems weren't because you needed a social change or that you need to reform your habits or your morals. I came among you to tell you that your problems, all of them in your life, are because you need Jesus as the reason and the purpose for what you do and everything you do. If Jesus becomes the Lord of your life, he'll fix all the symptoms. These, This group of people, they were all arguing, which was a symptom, that they had a God problem. If we're all serving ourselves, each one of us, look at this room, the people that are in here, if we all start to serve ourselves individually, then what happens is our needs and what we think is most important start to run against each other, and we start to batter ourselves against one another, and it, it just becomes a big dispute. But if we all focus on one focal point, if we focus on Christ and Him crucified and His reason for, lying, for living was to die, if we focus on Christ and follow His example, if we live for His purposes for our lives, what we're going to find is that we'll all be serving one master. And when we're all serving one master, we'll all go in the same direction And we won't stumble over one another because the Lord is going to direct each one of our steps. He'll be the one calling the shots as we're all seemingly walking around in the dark. We won't trip over one another because He won't cause our paths to cross over one another. It's like when you go fishing and and you start to cast off the boat. You ever go fishing and there's four people in the boat. There's only so much room on each side of the lake or on each side of the boat. So you cast. Well, I'm trying to get that fish over there. I just saw jump. Well, somebody else goes, well, I want it too. Next thing you know, the lines are crossed. Nobody catches any fish. But if everybody says, hey, I'm going to cast over here, if that's okay with you. And the other person says, okay, well, I'm going to cast over here. And we all yield to one another. Next thing you know, there's unity. And we all have the opportunity to catch a fish. But we're not fishing. Uh, We're building one another up. We're trying to meet the needs inside the church and then we're also trying to meet the needs of our, our culture, of the valley that we live in, with people who are lost. And so Paul's telling them, I didn't come to impress you. I didn't come to you know, uh, sway you with words. What I came with was the message of Jesus Christ, who was peaceable, willing to yield, but also truthful. Paul's words and his messages were not persuasive, drawing from human wisdom or human ideas. But instead, they were a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's what he says here in verse 3. He says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Now, we know this is true because in Acts chapter 18, Paul was in the middle of Corinth. He was speaking, and it says there that Jesus came to him in a vision. In verse 9 of chapter 18, if you want to look at it later, he says... Do not be afraid. This is the Lord speaking to Paul. He says, do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. And it says after that, that he continued there a year and six months. So he was there for a year and a half. Paul continued because the Lord encouraged him, not because he was strong in and of himself. He was afraid. The great apostle Paul The missionary that went on three missionary journeys that we have chronicled for us in the book of Acts. He went from city to city and he preached the gospel everywhere he went. One place they actually stoned him near to death, or many believe that he was dead. They drug him out of the city and left him for dead. And then when he came to, many believe that the Lord raised him from the dead. He walked back into the the city and he continued to preach. Now, where does boldness like that come from? Where does confidence like that come from? Well, I believe it comes from intimacy with the Lord. Hearing a word from the Lord's very mouth in His still small voice, sometimes through another Christian that's just wanting to encourage us. And what he said there is, don't be afraid, but speak. And so Paul, he tells them, he's brutally honest. He's like, hey, you guys, you want somebody to follow that's really strong and bold and, and just won't stop and is eloquent of speech. Well, here's what I want to tell you about me, guys. Even though that you guys think I'm something great, here's the reality. I was with you in weakness. I was physically weak. I was afraid and in much trembling. If leaders today were to be that bold, to speak that honestly to the people that follow them, how many people would be fickle and just leave them and not follow them anymore? But Paul's willing to lay his own weakness on the line to show them the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to lead him. Paul says, my boldness, my strength only came from the Lord. I was weak. And he says in verse four, my speech and my preaching were not worth persuasive words of human wisdom, but they were a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God wants to show you that he is sufficient. God wants to show you that man is weak. And sometimes he'll do that through the people that you trust in the most. The most godly people you know will let you down so that you can see how sufficient God is, not them. And so Paul says here, I was weak, but the Lord was strong. And it makes me think of where it says in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, Paul was writing to a young preacher who he sent to Ephesus, another very ungodly huge city where there was a church that he had started. He sent Timothy as a young man to pastor there. He was younger than most of the congregation. And what? here's what he said to him to encourage him. He says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. A mind that is whole. But it's not the mind that you and I have, because I don't know about you guys, but my mind more times than not is weak and trembling and I can't remember stuff. And, and all those things, but what he says is, the spirit of God is sufficient to make up for that weakness. God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Paul says here, "I was weak among you physically, but spiritually, I was strong, because God's given me his spirit. And in second, Tim, uh, second Timothy chapter three, verse 14 and 15, He says, therefore, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't come with human wisdom or persuasion. And for this reason, he says, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of man, but in the the power of God. When God makes the change... When God's Spirit speaks to you, when He comes upon you, and He makes changes in your life, those changes will remain long-term. If someone comes among you and says, hey, you need to change this about your life, or I think this is what you should do, it may be good wisdom. But if you change because they told you, and not because the Lord showed you, uh, it's, it's likely to falter, because when they're not around anymore, you may change your opinion, because they're not there constantly reminding you. And so it's important that we have that time with the Lord, that he teaches us to live in godliness. Verse 6, he says, However, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. He says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, verse 9, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So what Paul says here is, here's the reality We speak wisdom among those who are mature. He says, we didn't come with the wisdom of this age, but we came with the wisdom of God and we speak it among those who are mature. So what does he mean there by those who are mature? Well, first of all, he says, here's what he says that God's wisdom is not. We need to know what it's not before we can know what it is. He says, it's not the wisdom of this age. It's not the wisdom that's being propagated. It's not the popular ideas, the philosophies that men and women follow who who don't know the Lord. Number two, God's wisdom is not the wisdom of the rulers of this age. The rulers of this age are popular. How do I know that? They gain the popular vote to be in their positions. God's wisdom isn't always the, the, the wisdom of the rulers of this age. God's wisdom is not Number three, the wisdom with an expiration date. God's wisdom doesn't have an expiration date. It's not something you start living by, and then all of a sudden one day, it went bad, it soured. It's no longer good. It's not like milk that you put in your fridge, and you're like, I'll always have milk. And then you go in there one day, and you're like, how did this happen? It's no longer good. Now, if it's like our house, Lucy drinks it like it's going out of style, so it never goes bad. But when I was in college, and I had a gallon of milk in the fridge; it went bad. I started buying the half gallons, you know. But God's wisdom doesn't have an expiration date; it doesn't change. We were talking about police officers last night. We were uh, we went to the balloon glow in Farmington, and they had all these police officers that were, you know, they were uh, directing traffic, and there was much traffic, and there wasn't very much parking, and so they got really creative. They mowed down some hay fields and had us pull in. And of course, when, when we were getting there, man, it was smooth. But when we were leaving, it was like, it was crazy. It took us forever to get out of there. And so Kelly was like, man, those, those police officers, they've been out here all day. They need some encouragement. I'm going to roll down my window and tell them how great they're doing. Because it was going slow, but it was going smooth. And I said, I think that's a great idea. I'm guaranteeing nobody's rolling down their window and saying, hey, good job. They're going, what in the world are you doing? This is taking forever. That's what happens, right? And she goes, you know, I bet police officer is like the least sought after job right now. With everything going on politically, with everything that went on in Ferguson, with all the shootings, with all the f- finger pointing, I guarantee that it's not popular to be a police officer right now. And I was like, you're right, it's, I guarantee it's not. So she said, good job, you know, she rolled down her window, It's thanks guys. And I forget where I was going with that. That's what I was going to say. But think about this. Police officers uphold the law, right? If they catch you doing something that's against the law, they have to talk to you about it. Sometimes they give you a warning, and sometimes it's serious enough where they have to put charges against you and they have to take you in. But imagine being a police officer, and one day it's legal to do something, whether it's have drugs or or something like that, You know, like in Colorado. Imagine about those police officers. They have uh, to uphold the law. It's illegal to, to possess marijuana. And it's definitely illegal to use it. The next day, they pass a law. Hey, you can have marijuana now. So this police officer that's been upholding the law and arresting people for having marijuana, all of a sudden has to uphold the law to not arrest people that have marijuana. So the rules that they follow day to day can change based on legislature. But what I love about the Lord is that His law is permanent. His law doesn't change. He's holy. He's perfect. When He wrote it down the first time, it was exactly right. No one comes in and has an extra session and changes it. And so in order to live according to God's precepts, His teachings, we don't have to listen to the radio every day to see which one changed. We can just get in His book, get to know Him, and just remember Him. They're not going to falter. So... That was kind of a little segue just because I was thinking about how rules in this life change, but the rules of God don't. His rules are always the same. So, verse 7 through 9, we talked about what God's wisdom is not, but then in verse 7 through 9, he says this He says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So in verse 7 through 9, we see that God's wisdom is these things. Number one, a mystery. Now a lot of people go, well, if God's wisdom is a mystery, then how can we know it? Well, the same way that we could solve any mystery. We dig into the details. We seek after it. We seek after wisdom because it's important to us. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1, King Solomon, who wrote Proverbs, writes this. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to to understanding it he says yes if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding if you seek wisdom as if it was silver and search for her as for hidden treasures then you will understand the fear of the lord then you will understand the fear of the lord and find the knowledge of god for the lord gives wisdom From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. So God's wisdom is a mystery. It's a hidden thing. But we are to be those who seek after wisdom as if we were seeking after the gold that's buried under whatever. I think about the local newspaper does that. um, It's the hidden treasure thing. Uh, what's it called? Treasure mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and they put all the little clues in there. Well, if you know what it is, and you read the paper, you're looking at all the ads. And of course, they're trying to get you to read the ads and not just the paper, right? But as they get you to read the ads, you're willing to do it because you'll get a reward. You'll get to play the game. You'll get to seek after that treasure. And of course, they take your picture. I think the Pursleys won it one time. No? The Inman's. Micah and his wife won it. But they went and found it. But had they no desire to seek after it, they would not have found it. They wouldn't have read the ads. They wouldn't have looked at the little notes. And so we, in the same way, if we really want the wisdom of God, he, he puts it in a book where we can find it plainly, but he also kind of makes it a little more hard to find so that those who find it will have actually wanted it. They won't trample on it, but they'll use it for God's glory. And so it's a privilege to have the wisdom of God. And he doesn't make it difficult, and what we're going to find out is he actually gives us the ability to find it. Number two, God's wisdom is ordained by God. He has set it in place before time for our glory, for our good. In other words, he set it in place for us to find so that we would praise and give thanks to him when it's revealed to us. It's supposed to be just as necessary to us as if we wanted to find some sort of precious silver or gold. And then number three, God's wisdom was not known by the rulers and the world leaders of that day, nor is it known by the rulers and the world leaders of our day. Paul draws this conclusion, he says, because had they known the wisdom and the plans of God, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. If they knew the plans of God, they wouldn't have tried to kill the Savior that was meant for them. And then also, God's wisdom is not obtained through our natural senses. Read this verse in chapter 2, verse uh, 9 here. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. But it's right here in verse 9. He says, I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Well, if eye hasn't seen, if ear hasn't heard, if man hasn't even been able to perceive it in his heart, Then how did anybody write any of this down? How was God's wisdom gained? Well, my fourth point is that God's wisdom is not obtained through our natural senses. Our eyes see, right? But they don't actually see the wisdom of God. Our ears hear, but they can't necessarily hear the wisdom of God. Jesus, when he was preaching, he would walk around, and one of the things that we would say before he got ready to say something very important or right after he said something very important, is he would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, doesn't that seem unnecessary if he's talking to a group of people, especially a large crowd? How many people have ears? Most of them. There are a few that don't. Some people are born with birth defects. Some people have been in a major accident where their ears just aren't there. But the reality is, most of the people in that day had ears. He doesn't say, he who, has, he who has ears that hear, let him hear. He said, he who has ears to hear. So the question is, what did he mean by that? Well, he meant that he who has been awakened spiritually to be able to hear my words, let him hear. The wisdom of God is not received because we just have ears. The gospel is being preached 24-7 on TV networks. Are all the people that hear what's going on on that TV saved? No. So what's the missing element? And I'd like to propose to you, it's the Spirit of God. And Paul's going to spend the next portion of Scripture talking about that. But look at what Paul prayed for the the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Here's what he tells... Those who are at Ephesus in verse 14, he says to them, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth and on earth is named that he would grant you that he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend. How do we comprehend in school? We listen, we pay attention to the context clues, and we see, We, we pay attention. He says that all, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. These are all measurements, but he's describing something that can't be measured. Not physically, anyway. He says that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. If it passes knowledge, how can we know it? He's telling us that God would grant it to us by his Spirit that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so we see in just that set of verses That God has to give it to us. And the way he's chosen to give it to us is by pouring out his spirit upon us, in us, and through us. The three different relationships we can have with the Holy Spirit. And this is something that's not, it's a mystery, and yet God just says, ask for it. In James chapter 1, he says, He who lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Father, and he will give to those liberally who ask for it. In Luke chapter 9, verse 13, he actually says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. I'm going to turn there because I think it's important what Jesus said. Luke chapter 11, in verse 9, he says this. He says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek or look for it and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. And then he talks about a father and son relationship. He says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? The answer is no. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent or a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Verse 13, if you then, being evil as fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So if you're here this morning and you're like, I want to walk with the Lord, I want the wisdom of God, but I don't get it. And the ways you're telling me to get it are reading the Word, are praying, are fellowshipping with other believers, but I still don't get it, here's the missing element. You need the Spirit of God. And He gives to you liberally, if you are His child, if you come to Him by faith through His Son Jesus, the reality is, is He that's a gift He wants to give you. And sometimes all we've got to do is ask for it. Lord, give me your Holy Spirit so that I can understand these things that I don't get. And what He'll do is He'll, it won't be a, necessarily a feeling, it won't be, but what He'll do is He'll slowly, as you can take it, pour out upon you. But what he also says in scripture is that he'll give it to you without measure. He doesn't just go, well, here's a little bit. What he does is he lavishes it on us. He takes that that cup of his spirit and he goes, he douses you with it so that you can not only have the wisdom of God, but so that it will overflow from your life. That's his desire for you and I. And I love this because Paul's going to explain this in verse 10 through 12. I'll get back there. First Corinthians two, verse 10. He says this, after saying, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. He says, but this is a contrast word, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. It's a gift. Verse 13. (laughs) These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, and here's something that we forget as we're witnessing to those that don't know the Lord, that that are not the children of God, we forget this. The natural man, verse 14, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Did you know that? Have you ever tried to witness to somebody and you feel like you're literally talking to a wall? Well, number one, we've all talked to someone before and they weren't listening. They were looking at us, but you could just look in their eye and they're not really listening. And you're just, it's so frustrating because you're trying to tell them something that you feel like they need to know. But they're like off thinking about football or cars. Not that I'm implying it's mostly guys. But sometimes that happens, right? Or they're thinking about what I'm going to make for dinner tonight, or so and so told them something today, and they're just they're just absorbed with that, and they're wondering how so and so is doing. These aren't all bad things, but when we talk to people, sometimes they're just not listening. And you just I just stop talking most of the time because I'm like, look, I don't like repeating myself, and I'll just wait until they see if they even realize I stopped talking. You know, that's not one way we can do it. But in the same way, sometimes we, we witness to people. We're sharing Jesus with them, and we, man, we want them to get it. This is the life that's changed me. I've shared this with my own parents, and I love my parents dearly. And one day, the Spirit of the Lord is just going to come upon them, and they're going to get it. And I hope they do, and I hope they're not sorrowful over the things that they've said or the discouragement they give me. I just want them to know the Lord. But you talk to them, and you feel like, I'm talking to somebody that is listening, but they don't get it. Or they're, they're listening, but they're not really listening. They, they can't get it. That's the reality. So my wife and I talk about this all the time because we're trying to lead people to Jesus. We don't want to lead them necessarily to our church. We just want them to know Jesus. That's our goal. And sometimes one of us will say to the other when the other one's frustrated, as frustrating as that might be, we'll look at the other and go, pray more than you talk. Pray. Have you prayed for that talk person more than you've talked to them? Because Paul, what he says here." I didn't come to you per- to persuade you with my own words. But in demonstration of the Spirit, I wanted the Lord to persuade you. And He's the only one that can anyway. And the same is true after you come to know the Lord. There are some things that only the Spirit can discern, some changes that need to take place, and you can try to preach to somebody to they're blue in the face. This area of your life needs to change. And they're just like, bleh. They're not listening. They can't hear it. They can't receive it. They're in the flesh, whatever. But the reality is, is the Lord will come upon them, give them ears to hear what you say when you're in the spirit will make sense to them. And all of a sudden, everything will connect and they'll be in the like, they'll come up to you and they'll go, you know what the Lord was showing me today? I need to quit doing this, this, and this. And you'll just be in awe because you've said it a million times. But the spirit of the Lord did it. And so now it's going to happen. That's the impetus. That's where growth happens. That's where change happens. The Holy Spirit wants to change you and I. He wants to transform you by the the power of the Spirit. And it's not this voodoo type thing. It's, It's a very practical thing. But you won't know what it's like until you ask the Lord, do it. Lord, come into my life. Change me. I want to be pleasing to you. I just don't know how. I want to understand your word. I just don't get it. And the Lord, what he'll do is he'll go, I'll give you understanding. Just ask. So he says this in verse 13, excuse me, verse 14. I'm just going to reiterate because we just talked about it. He says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For to him they are foolishness, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned or perceived and understood verse 15 but he who is spiritual judges all things yet he himself is rightly judged by no one for he who, who has known the mind of the lord that he may instruct him but we we don't have to know the mind of the lord we have the mind of christ do you know what caused jesus to say this i come to do the will of the father the mind of christ The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that He was given to do all that God gave Him to do and He did it obediently, God offers that same Spirit to you and I. And so when you think that you're trying to do God's will and you feel like you're wearing yourself out and you just can't do it and on your own it feels like you just fail over and over again, that's when God's going, Look, I knew you couldn't do it on your own. Let me help you. When Lucy tries to climb up on the couch and it's just too tall And she's just pulling and she's wincing and she's sweating and she's grunting. I want her to be on the couch. But sometimes she has to be humbled in order to be exalted. She has to ask for help. And she's learning my favorite phrase now. Help please, Dada. And the Lord, he's offering that to us. Help please, Dada. I need you. And what the Lord does is he says, I want to help you. I don't want you to do this on your own. I died. I sent my spirit so that you and I could daily work together in this thing. Us feeling like we're helping, but him really doing it. And so, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We always try to instruct God, and he's just trying to instruct us. What do you need instruction in? Where is your weakness? Are you trying to do it on your own? Are you trying to please Him in your own strength? Take a word from Paul here. It it won't work. But if we will walk in the Spirit, it will ask Him to to be basically our our training wheels, but not the ones that bob you back and forth. The training wheels that keep you on the steady and straight path. Ask Him and He'll give it. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank You so much for this word from Paul in the book of Corinthians. He, uh, no doubt, he had experienced this very thing. Otherwise, he couldn't have taught it. That we are insufficient in and of ourselves. (coughs) We're like a tree standing out in the middle of a a big field. When the wind comes, we're not strong enough to do it on our own. So Lord, help us to rely upon you. And in so doing, Lord, teach us to rely upon each other. Because one of the things that the Corinthian church lacks, and I'm sure... Many churches, including our own lack, is that we rely upon our own strength and we won't call on each other for help. You've given us to be around one another, to be your hands and feet, to serve one another, and encourage one another to keep going. So Lord, teach us to be encouragers of one another. Help us to be each other's biggest fan, each other's biggest cheerleader in the faith. Lord, uh, help us not to fix or try to fix the world's problems by bringing on social reform or uh, social programs or you know systems that will fix things. Lord, the biggest need that we have in our homes, in our workplaces, in our community and in our county, they can all be fixed. All the symptoms can be changed by you being Lord of all. And so Lord Jesus, please um, do the things through us that you desire to see changed. Father, we need you to help us. In Jesus' name, amen.